Henry David Thoreau once said, you cannot kill time without injuring eternity. Now, if that's true, I'm sure a lot of us have injured eternity because uh, we have not made the most of our time. One of the things that has really struck me when I've uh, been reading through the biographies of Paul is the amazing way in which he made everything count. Now, that did not mean he was a workaholic. Uh, He rested and he really made his rest count. When he ministered, he made his ministry time count. And even the enormous amount of traveling that he had to do to get destinations was not wasted time. He made every bit of that time count as well. And even though I've not taken the time to comment on his travels uh, very far, uh, very much this far up uh, in the book, I think this is a nice snapshot of how Paul made his trips count. Uh, When I've traveled to China and India, I've rejoiced in some of the times that I've had alone to get things done on the airplane, but I have also sought to make the most out of my time that I've had with my travel companions because I don't have the luxury in my normal ministry work week to be able to spend that kind of time uh, one-on-one with uh, people. And uh, so it's been a blessing. Uh, Those are our gifts that are not really ordinary. So I love this passage, and I trust that you're going to love it by the time we're through, that you will be uh, blessed, and that it'll even affect the way you consider your own uh, travels, whether it's across town or across the states. Uh, Let's begin at verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. Paul made a deliberate decision to travel all day on foot and to do so all alone. He sent the rest of his team on the ship, which was the easy way to travel, and he himself traveled 20 miles uh, in order to uh, get to this meeting point in Assos. Uh, One commentator said this was probably to gain opportunity for quiet fellowship with God in view of what lay ahead. And the words that you find there, given orders and intending, show that this was not an accident. It wasn't as if he missed the boat, he didn't quite get there, and so he had to travel on alone. No, this was very deliberate, it was intentional, and it was thought through. And I think that Paul's first and foremost reason for doing this was that he wanted to spend time with God. He wanted to have a time of fellowship. It really doesn't make sense for him to make a a 20-mile walk just from efficiency standards, uh, this was utterly inefficient. You know, sure, he could, he could travel by foot and make it in one day, but there's always the risk of, uh, of missing uh, that. Uh, ship travel was dirt cheap. It was a much faster way of traveling. And this by itself argues that efficiency should not be the only standard that we use to uh, judge time management or even the way in which we uh, handle our money. When I was in Bible school, I was the ultimate efficiency freak. I had studied time management and felt very guilty if there was any wasted time whatsoever. And so I'd have things posted on all of the different walls uh, for memorizing uh, while I'm dressing or shaving. And uh, when I'm in the shower going over those those, uh, scriptures, I would jog from class to class. It was a big campus, and so there was lots of jogging because... That saved time. I had to go to these classes anyway, so instead of setting a separate time, and I'd always double task or triple task when I was doing things. And so while I'm jogging, I'm going, reviewing my homework or other things like that. When I'm standing in dinner line, 
I've got Greek cards or Hebrew cards that I'm going over. And when I'm eating, I've got stuff I'm reading on my lap. And I was very, very efficient, but I was missing out on opportunities for developing relationships and for developing a fellowship with uh, the people that I was with. Uh, I didn't take the time to have fun. I didn't take the time to uh, just do things with others. When Paul redeemed his time and when he commands us to redeem the time, he was not being an efficiency freak and he was not commanding us to be efficiency freaks. In fact, recently I read a a joke that I think uh, illustrates this uh, quite well. An efficiency expert had just given a a very good lecture on different ways of really increasing your efficiency, but he gave a note of caution at the end. He said, I really suggest that you not use this at home. And one of the guys said, why not? This seems like great stuff. Why not? And he said, well, I watched my wife's routine for breakfast for quite a number of years, Uh, She made lots of trips between the uh, refrigerator and stove and the cabinets and the table, and I noticed she really could become a little bit more efficient. She was only carrying one thing at a time. And so I said, "Hun, why don't you try carrying several things at once? And the student asked, well, did it save some time? I said, well, actually, yes. It used to take her 20 minutes to prepare breakfast. Now it takes me seven minutes. (laughs) And... (laughs) I used to think that Paul's command to redeem the time meant we couldn't waste a second. We had to be constantly trimming the seconds off of our schedule. In fact, that was the year I told you about a few weeks ago where I was trying to trim time off my sleep time. I'd gotten down to four hours and I had intended for the rest of my life to only sleep four hours a day. I just thought sleep is such an utter waste of time. What are we doing sleeping away our lives? So this was my goal. Here was my motto uh, for that time. It's a little poem. I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, can't refuse it, but it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it. Give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. That was my motto for life. Okay, I was driven by time, but not by God. And there was a vast difference between the two. And I really do regret my intense drivenness to uh, make every second uh, count back then. I regret my intense desire to maintain a four-point, you know, grade-point average. And I'm thinking, you know, 30 years later, who cares what grades you got? But what of all of the missed relationships that I did not develop? Let me give you a statement this morning that may be a surprise to you, especially coming from me, because most of you know how driven I I really am. But here is the statement. God commands you to waste time. God commands you to waste time, at least if it's measured from an efficiency standard. He commands you to waste money on decorations and fun food and uh, celebrations. He's all about wasting things if it means you don't waste relationships. Okay? He's all about wasting things if it means you don't waste relationships. Now, let's just examine that statement. Uh, God commands you to waste time and see if that's true uh, or not. Um, is not the Sabbath a waste of time when it's measured in terms of how much output we can get out there. 
Isn't prayer a waste of time? If you're measuring your life merely by the massive amount of work that you can get accomplished, now I would never have said back then that prayer was a waste of time. I was going to Bible school, that didn't sound very spiritual, but it sure felt like it was a waste of time to be spending so much time in, in prayer. What gives? What gives on that? Here's another question. Isn't the quality time that the couple spends in the Song of Solomon an inefficient waste of time if the only goal of marriage is to produce babies? I mean, what's with all of this uh, poetic interaction? Why so slow? They could do it in a lot more uh, efficient time, a lot more quickly, if that was their only goal. But you see, love and uh, relationships cannot be measured in seconds and efficiency. It cannot. If you worry about wasting money on wine and maybe an expensive dessert when you're having special company over, you're missing the whole point. Isn't evangelizing the world through sinful, weak, and frail people like you and me an utter waste of time since God could do it a whole lot more efficiently by sending angels out to do it? They can travel so fast, and boy, if an angel appeared to you in, in bright light, that'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? And for that matter, why does God have us do any of the labors we do for Him? He doesn't need us. Acts 17 says God does not need us at all. He could say it in one word and it would all be done. Why does He use us? And I bring all of this up because it's so easy to become driven by agendas and tasks and the expectations of others and a hundred other things, but not be driven by God. And I'm not talking about excusing laziness here or excusing lack of quality because I think everything Paul did, he did with quality, he did it thoroughly. Uh, There were times when God had had Paul really hurrying, like in this passage, he's hurrying to get to Jerusalem. And there were other times he had Paul slow down and relax. But Paul had all the time that he needed to develop relationships with others. And we're going to be seeing that Uh, In a future week, in his speech later on in this uh, chapter, remarkable the kind of time he took for relationships and he had all the time he needed for the ultimate relationship with God the Father. And I believe this is one of those times when Paul needed to spend time alone with God. He'd need to pray through the things that he was going to be saying to the elders from Ephesus. Uh, He needed time to think through and process with the Lord the coming persecution that he was going to be facing. In fact, if you look down at verses 22 through 24, you'll see that Paul uh, had had a number of prophecies from the Spirit coming to him, telling him in every city that he traveled to, you're going to be bound in Jerusalem, you're going to suffer tribulations in, in Jerusalem. Now, he didn't know what more was going to happen to him. He didn't know if perhaps he was going to die there. In fact, in Romans 15, you can read it for yourself sometime, he begs the Romans, pray for me that I would not get killed in Jerusalem, that I'd be delivered from the Jews so that I can come and visit you. So he's got a lot that's weighing upon his mind and he needs time alone with God. For those of you who have difficulty in developing intimacy with God, I suggest that you take an entire day off with just you and the Lord, all by yourselves. Yes, waste time with God. Now, John Piper wrote a wonderful book called Don't Waste Your Life. But in that book, he points out that both lazy people and driven people can waste their lives at the very time they're trying not to waste their lives because their whole perspective is wrong. 
See, if you're missing out on intimacy with Christ, you're missing out on the most important thing that can govern and regulate your whole life. When verse 13 says, intending himself to go on foot, Paul was not wasting his life. Now, from one perspective, he was, if you're just looking at it on an efficiency standard. But from another perspective, he was not. What he was doing is he was putting first things first and he was reserving time between himself and the God that Romans says, for of him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 11, verse 36. See, there's so many things that can keep us from aligning our lives with the Lord God. But here's the, the neat thing. When your life is aligned and in tune with God's will, absolutely everything that you do will count for eternity. Everything that you do will be done for Him, through Him, and to Him. Charles Spurgeon once said, If you make doctrine the main thing, you're very likely to grow narrow-minded. I think this really hits home to to reform people. He said, If you make doctrine the main thing, you're very likely to grow narrow-minded. If... On the other hand, you make your own experience the main thing, you will become gloomy and critical of others. If you make ordinances the main thing, you will be apt to grow merely formal. But you can never make too much of the living Christ Jesus. Remember that all things else are for His sake. Doctrines and ordinances are the planets, but Christ is the Son. Get to love Him best of all. Isn't that a great statement? If only we could line our lives up with that. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. There are things that are weighing him down incredibly. In fact, in verse 22, he says, his spirit is bound. He feels bound in spirit. And so he's got to get together with the Lord to realign his thinking and his priorities. He hungers for God as David did. But verses 14 through 15 show that Paul was not a recluse. He didn't spend all of his time alone with God. Like Jesus, he did spend time, a great deal of time, alone with the Father. But like Jesus, he also spent a great deal of time with his uh, uh, work associates. Look at verses 14 through 15. When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus. Now, that was about a five-day trip, and if you look at all of the different sites that he went through on that five-day trip, you realize outwardly they're seeing a lot of exquisite beauty. But he was also seeing a lot of spiritual darkness. Assos was an impregnable city on the southern coast of the Gulf of um, Adramitium. It's modern Edramit, but back then it was called Adramitium. Uh, There was a school of Platonic philosophy there, pumping out all kinds of students. There was also a school of Aristotelian uh, philosophy. And between those two, they're making people hardened to the truth. Uh, This is a lot of evil that is being pumped out. Uh, Mytilene was the chief city of Lesbos, the island famous for its lesbian poet Sappho. In fact, that's where the name lesbian comes from. It's from the the island of Lesbos. The whole island was a place of wickedness and darkness, but it was beautiful, very attractive. In fact, this was one of the resort spots that was a favorite for the Roman elite. And so there was uh, a lot of stuff out there that was very alluring, very attractive to attract the, the tourists that were out there. Chios was the largest of the Aegean islands off the west coast of Asia. 
Samos was just above Patmos. You know, Patmos was where the Apostle John got banished and he wrote the book of, uh, of Revelation. Miletus was the capital of Ionia, housed the, the huge temple to Diana. And so from one perspective, this was a fantastic tourist trip for five days that these guys were able to take, a lot of beauty that they were taking in. But from another perspective, it was a, it was a time of uh, danger, and a time of spiritual darkness. Uh, I actually took uh, Ben to a large temple in uh, China. Ordinarily, I don't like to go to those places. They're so dark. But I thought this would be a good educational uh, time for him. And uh, he knows exactly what I'm talking about when he says he, he could feel tangibly the darkness of that place. And so what's going on here is I think it's a good thing for Paul to have traveling companions if for no other reason than for accountability and support. It's not a good thing for men to travel alone and resort places like that. So that's one lesson that I learned. But uh, another is this was a bit of a tedious trip that he was going on. And I think some of you just dread some of the long trips. You find them tedious. When I'm tempted to complain about the long trips that I have to take uh, to Asia and to India, what I need to do is I need to remind myself, hey, that's nothing like what the Apostle Paul had to, <laughs> to go on. I give myself perspective. The seven weeks that he's traveling uh, in chapters 20 and 21 uh, between Passover and Pentecost, it's almost all traveling. There's a little bit of layovers that are there. But I'm sure very, very tedious. So next time you, you know, grumble and complain about a long trip that you have to take across the states, just put it all into perspective and say, you know, it could always be worse. I've got a lot to be thankful for. I'm not going across the states in a covered wagon. I've got an air-conditioned car to go in. So this passage gives me perspective. But there's a third lesson here. What wonderful, incredible opportunities they had during these trips to invest in each other's lives. I think this is a, a, a wonderful thing. I love it when I can take a companion along with me on my trips. And while I enjoy the times that they're sleeping, because I can have time alone for reading and you know, memorization and prayer and things like that, I also really value the times that I can interact and talk uh, with these people. We've got 26 to 46 hours of travel and what incredible opportunities, you know, to talk about every conceivable subject, right, Ben? Uh, talking about, uh, you know, worldview and, and uh, uh, you know, there's counseling, there's discipleship, there's growth in Christ. In our regular ministry uh, times, we just often don't have the luxury to be able to do that much time, one-on-one -on -one, uh, discipleship. So I value such trips for the times that I can have alone, because I, I can read, I can get discipleship, uh, not discipleship, uh, memorization, um, just working on my own relationship with the Lord, prayer, or just zoning out. There's a place for zoning out too, and sometimes you just are staring ahead doing nothing. But. And I also value those trips because of the relationships that can be developed with companions. Uh, those are good times. And so it helps me uh, to not see the trip as being so bad. Now, here's my encouragement to you. When you take trips that we are all alone, use that as an opportunity to 
Sometimes it's good to just sleep and relax and zone out, but use it as opportunities to grow in Christ and to listen to CDs and to, in other ways, make the most of that trip. And when you are traveling with other companions, thank the Lord for the gift of fellowship and make the most of that time uh, with them. Traveling need not be a waste. And it's amazing how much you can get through. If you've got a 20-minute commute or a half-hour commute to work, how many lectures you can get through in a year by listening to CDs. So try to make the most of your trips. The third thing I see in this passage is the value of planning. Verse 16, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now here is the strange thing about that statement. The text says he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem. He didn't want to sp- spend much time in, in Asia, so he skipped Ephesus and he went to Miletus. And yet commentators point out that this actually took him more time. When he was in Miletus, he has to now send messengers two days backtracking to Miletus to call the elders. It's about a 31-mile trip as the crow flies, but you know those winding paths. It's not as the crow flies. So two-day trip there. The elders have a two-day trip. He spends a day with them. That's five days altogether. And liberals, they love to nitpick and say, oh, yeah, this is, this is obvious. This guy didn't know what he's talking about. He's not going to save time doing this. And they criticize this text. And they say if he really wanted to save time, he'd just stop in Ephesus, spend even two days there, and he'd still be three days ahead on his schedule. Well, it may sound logical on the surface, but when all of the facts are considered, it really doesn't hold much water. First of all, verse 38 indicates that at the end of the five days, they board the same ship that they came in. Okay? For some reason, the ship has been docked there for five days. Uh, the commentator Alexander said, well, maybe they're unloading goods and they're loading up new goods, maybe retrofitting the ship. We don't know why, but we do know the ship does not move until the fifth day. And so if Paul knows ahead of time that this is going to happen and he knows the other shipping schedules, he knows this is the fastest way to go. And while he's docked, he makes the most of his time, calls the Ephesian elders, He knows he's got just enough time to be able to meet with them uh, for one day. Otherwise, he would have skipped it altogether. So to me, this actually shows planning. Second, if he had stayed in Ephesus, some commentators point out that he would likely have been pressured to stay much more than one week because Ephesus is going through a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulties, and it would be a lot easier to minister to these Ephesian elders from a distance and then, okay, the ship's going, we've got to take off, than it would be to go into the city and to, you know, fight the pressure to stay there and to be able to leave uh, on time. May be true, may not be true. The text really doesn't tell us. Others suggest that the danger of the mob riot that occurred in Ephesus, and you can see that in chapter 19, 21 through 41, indicates that the place is still dangerous for Paul. If he goes to Ephesus, he might get arrested spend time in jail, well, that would definitely be spending a lot of time in Asia, wouldn't it? And uh, he wouldn't be able to get to Jerusalem on time. Uh, That actually makes more sense, but if that was true, it's definitely an understatement on the part of Luke. Uh, Why does he say he didn't want to spend time in jail instead of he didn't want to spend time in Asia? Um, Others suggest that Ephesus was a dangerous city. Securing the money might have been uh, kind of difficult. Personally, for me, I think it's just simply a case of being aware of the shipping schedules, 
and that it would take a while to get another ship if he stopped in at Ephesus. You can't just pick up a ship every day. And uh, so to me, uh, the only thing that this text talks about is he's trying to save time, and verse 38 says he's boarding the same ship, and so this is just planning on the part of Paul. A second thing that shows planning is that Paul does indeed see time like money. The Greek word for spend time is exactly that, spend time. Uh, It's not a loose translation. It's a very uh, literal, accurate translation. He spends time. He treats it just like money. It's a scarce commodity, and he plans exactly where he's going to spend it. Some places he tarries. Some places he hurries past, and he only has so much time just like he only has so much money. He doesn't want to spend a lot of time in Asia. Again, it shows planning. And in all of this, he's driven by a purpose, The text says, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem. Now, he knows he's going to suffer in Jerusalem. God's already told him that's going to happen. So it's it's a destined thing. Might as well get it over with. He wants to go forward there, but he also really longs to bless the church in Jerusalem with all of this money. And so there's, there's purpose, there's planning that is involved. And yet, despite all of the planning, he submits to God's sovereignty. The text says, if possible if possible. Now, each of those five indicators, I think, are great guides for our own planning. We do need to plan, but you can't spend all your time in planning. The the fourth word of this verse uh, indicates we need to make decisions just like Paul made decisions. But decisions aren't enough. We also need to make actions. And the, the planning and the actions that we take need to be driven by a goal. And the goal, a God-given goal there is in the so that of this verse. Fifth, there must be time management in terms of God's plans. Now, this is not a contradiction. Earlier I said that he was not driven by time or by task. He was driven by God. But you see, when you are driven by God, you're going to be involved in planning and time management. The reverse is not always true. There are people who are so driven by their schedule, so driven by time, they're not sensitive to the way God blue pencils and He brings things in uh, to their lives. They're so driven by their tasks, they forget the God that they're trying to serve. Okay, They're, they're, they're so tied up in service, they forget the service. Just like Martha. Martha was this way. She was exasperated with Jesus. Supposedly, she's serving Him, but she's exasperated with Jesus and He's not fitting into her time schedule and into her tasks. She's got it completely upside down. Well, Paul completely lays aside the Martha syndrome and he, he says, if possible, or under God's sovereignty. And all of this, I think, shows a, a beautiful balance in his planning. Some people spend so much time planning that they never get any work done. Uh, Dr. J.B. Gambrell tells the story of General Stonewall Jackson's uh, Valley Campaign, very famous campaign, and he came up to this river. He needed to get across. He told his engineers, hey, we've got to get all of this equipment across, build a bridge quick. And as he was leaving the tent there, he just happened to mention to his wagon master, we've got to get across this river as quick as possible. Well, unbeknownst to him, the wagon master decided he was going to build a bridge himself, and he gathered all the logs and the fence posts and everything he could, and before daylight the next day, he had gotten all of the equipment, everything across, and he reported to General Jackson that this had been accomplished. Well, Jackson was kind of surprised, and he said, well, where are the engineers? And 
he said, well, they're still in the tent drawing up plans for a bridge. <laughs> so here's a guy, you know, that does not let moss grow on his wheels. And I find that Paul had much the same spirit. He planned, but he was also a man of action. Now, the last thing that I see in this section is that Paul valued retreats. He was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, and the text says the reason he wanted to be in Jerusalem is he wanted to celebrate the Pentecost festival in Jerusalem. Now, when you look at what is done on Pentecost, which is not a whole lot, you know, you do listen to some preaching, and you sit around eating food and just relaxing, you wonder, how could a driven guy like Paul enjoy something like that? Well, the reason he could enjoy it is because he was balanced. He was not a, a workaholic. He had been refreshed by these festivals in the past and he was really looking forward uh, to being refreshed uh, once more. <clears throat> and there is a value to retreats. Uh, we do need to take these times like Thanksgiving and you know, the, celebrating the birth of Christ and other times where we could just set aside, kick back, relax and enjoy ourselves. Uh, I think it really is important. When people climb Mount Everest, there are at least four camps that they stop at. And the reason they have to stop there is that our bodies are just not up to the entire trek all at once. They have to uh, rest their bodies. And we need times of rest on our climb of the spiritual Mount Everest. Now, I started this sermon by saying that every moment in our lives needs to count for eternity. But I did not mean that we should be workaholics, so I hasten to say God commands us to waste time, at least when it's measured by an efficiency standard. How do we gain that balance? Well, I think we do it by seeing Jesus Christ as the pearl of great price. Everything else goes by the wayside if Christ calls for it. He's the one that we're focused on, and all of our lives revolve around Him. If our lives revolve around Him, then everything we do is going to count for eternity. Paul made everything count. His time alone, his time with associates, his times of celebration. And we can make everything count as well, whether we're resting or working, whether we're traveling to a destination or we've already arrived at that destination. As Piper said, the surest way to waste your life is to seek pleasure apart from Christ, success apart from Christ, purpose apart from Christ, to seek anything apart from Christ. In Philippians 1.21, Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. He's not an add-on. No, he's the Lord. He is your life. There's nothing uh, that Christ is willing to be an add-on to. Or as Spurgeon said, he is the sun around which the planets of all of the other important things in our lives must revolve. Everything you think is important that drives you, it's merely a planet that is circling around the sun of righteousness, Jesus Christ. And that is certainly true of your travels. Your travels are not just a means to an end. They're part of your life that's traveling around the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, travels can be exhausting endeavors, but with a little bit of planning, you can make your travels something you really look forward to, just like Paul did. Make your travels another planet revolving around the Son of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for your word and even little travel uh, uh, dialogues like this that Luke gives to us, Father, are written for our edification and for your glory. And I pray that we, your people, 
would align our lives in such a way that they are planets revolving around Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness. We bless You, Father, for having allowed us to even be redeemed in this way that we're not wandering planets uh, like the pagans in, in Jude were uh, with no purpose, no destiny, no light, uh, just wandering dark planets. But Father, uh, may our lives truly be lighted by the light of Your Word, empowered by the power of Your Holy Spirit and be set on a course and a destiny that brings glory to You and truly edifies each one of us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.